I feel like we're doing like the post game show right now before before no, the actual is, podcast starts. When we had that conversation, I was feeling two parallel paths of emotions. One was I actually had tears in my eyes, you know, trying to legitimize why I'm overly passionate about this stuff, but also really excited that, you know, something contentious happened before the mic even went on, which means it's as good as done for this to be a classic outing. <laughs> Let's hope so. No, there's no question. <laughs> this in my is mind. a weird way to start the whole thing off, but let's do it. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on unrest, along with our very special guest, Mark Robinson himself, who'll be going through his entire catalog, every single release he's ever had a hand in writing, performing, and or guesting on, and rating them all from zero to five stars. Okay, here's the deal. I worked my butt off on this series. If you're an unrest, Air Miami, Grenadine, Mark Robinson super fan, I seriously implore you to stop this podcast right now because the full interview was a whopping 16 hours long and only about four hours of that will be available without a subscription to our Patreon. Beginning at the major or lieutenant tier at minimum, you'll unlock two massively larger ad-free director's cut edits. You can just buy them outright as well. The major tier director's cut is 100% as I intended, and it's the longest episode I've yet run. This is the ultimate cut at just shy of three hours long. The Lieutenant Tier Director's Cut, also ad-free, runs a slightly slimmed down two hours. And then there's the free version, which will have ads and will total one hour. So if you're a true fan like I am, honestly, the Major Tier Director's Cut is really the only place to be. There will be three more installments in the Mark Robinson series, and they'll all be presented just like this one, as will all massively sprawling interviews henceforth. This, then, is the first episode detailing my undeniably crazed, over-the-top, obsessives rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. It's the Mark Robinson Rates Unrest series. This is part one. You've just merged onto the Road to Imperial 1985-1992, to in which Mark reveals the full, sordid backstory of the several weeks leading up to our summit meeting, as I admittedly totally overdid it with my 204 pages of notes and endless, ultimately alienating texts and calls to him. The growth steps that had to happen for Mark to develop into one of the greatest pop songwriters of all time and over a half hour just on Imperial FFRR alone. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. 
We don't just cover albums. Uh Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all... The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got John Worcester talking about his favorite live albums of all time, Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done, Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done, alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kind of itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for significantly longer, complete versions of all our shows, just go to patreon.com slash discography and subscribe. Even if you're not sure, just head on over there because it's finally completely free to become a basic member. We've got well over 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon. And that number, as well as the discography inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discography. And away we go then. You ready for the best intro you've ever had? I'm not kidding. There's no question this is the best. That was the intended desired effect. You ready? Let's do it. All right. Yeah. Today's guest is a man of action. At 16 years old, he set up his own label called Teen Beat to release the music his band Unrest was making, along with the super cool sounds his friends' bands were making. Over 550 fetishistically cataloged releases later, Teen Beat is still a going concern. Keep in mind, I'm not much of a sports guy, but this man's right arm, his strumming arm, is more impressive to me than any pitching legend in baseball history. There is no doubt that today's guest should ensure that shit, like J-Lo did her tush, because it's brought so much joy to so very many, not to mention the enjoyment that fucking limb brings to his taste buds every day at noon or thereabouts as he scarfs down his daily peanut butter and jelly sandwich. On a less delectable note, I've unfortunately annoyed him half to death in the weeks leading up to this summit meeting. This, the most in-depth interview I've yet done for the show, my notes amounting to a whopping 201 pages. He's revealed to me a few days ago that nobody annoys him and that I, in fact, both annoy him and trigger him, (laughs) although we've since made up, but I don't hold it against him, even though it brought me to the verge of tears at that very moment since he is the most incredibly prolific human being whose qualitative yardstick is still in perfect working condition he's been a musical deity to me for nigh on three decades so buckle up because here we go down a deep deep pop intensive rabbit hole are you ready lads and ladies shooting roman candles up into the ink black nighttime sky out in the yonder reaches of discographityville we have gathered here today in a collective bid to achieve maximum pop perfection ergo here i sit both proud and humbled as i get to introduce to you a man named mark robinson that's me. How's it going? 
It's gone pretty well. You are an unflappable guy. I knew I'd get no reaction from you at all. I know. I felt like I should be like screaming or doing some like Judas Priest singing after, after your intro there. <laughs> I want to. I want to thank you profusely for coming on. It has been for you certainly, and you have voiced this to me, and I think it's probably for the best in terms of how you and I uh, swirl around each other like a double helix of DNA uh, for the next 20 to 70 hours to just <laughs> address the elephant in the room, which is that uh, we have had a relationship here for a few weeks that I've not been diagnosed as this, but I have Asperger type tendencies, kind of, you know, trying to get to know you before the actual thing. And I think you were taken aback by that, were you not? Uh, a little bit, just by the, the sheer number of uh, text messages that were flying into my uh, telephone on a second-by-second -second basis, but it was totally fine. Here's my guess, and my wife and I had a conversation about it this morning. I think that your betrothed sat you down and said, look, this is a good guy. He's doing something to enshrine the greatness that is you. Uh, you know, take it easy on this guy, for Christ's sake. And then you were like, oh, you know what? I think you're right. Did that conversation take place? No. Okay. Um, but no, it's fine. I just felt bad for saying that. Cause, but I was, I was uh, you know, it was just a lot. That's all. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm a lot. <laughs> I'm a lot. We were texting more than anyone I've ever texted before. So it was a maximum level uh, attention span for me. And then I pulled away. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like after that you had a, ch a change of heart and you wanted to be texting all the time. I don't want to be texting all the time. I don't think we got back up to that level. I think we I, we're on a now we're now on a more comfortable texting level. Okay. This feels like I feel like we're doing like the post game show right now before before no, the actual is, podcast starts. I, I thought <laughs> I thought it was an interesting development, and and actually when we had that conversation, I was feeling two parallel paths of emotions. One was I actually had tears in my eyes, you know, trying to legitimize why I'm overly passionate about this stuff, but also really excited that, you know, something contentious happened before the mic even went on, which means it's it's as good as done for this to be a classic outing. <laughs> let's hope so. No, there's no question. <laughs> this is a mind. weird way to start the whole thing off, but let's it's do it. <laughs> so great that it happened that way, I think. So, uh, but I am sorry for annoying you. That wasn't the uh, the intended outcome. It was but totally I, fine. So I want to <laughs> I want to talk about what you mean to me. You know, my experience with you, I'm deeply knowledgeable, deeply, intimately knowledgeable about a whole bunch of your work. And then there was a, a lot of stuff where I'm coming in for the first time. So it's going to mm -hmm. be an interesting dichotomy of probably being overly familiar with your stuff and then peeking in as a newcomer. Your introduction to my life came at literally the perfect time. I've told you about this, but I want to explain so because this interview needs context. When I was 20 years old in 1992, I was going to Boston University at the time, and uh, your skin is still super soft and smooth looking, my friend. Good on you. <laughs> Good on you for you did, you did you drop out of BU? Is that the Modern Lover song? I did drop out of BU. I got All right. uh, suspended. And at the time, I was reading the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And so I thought, well, obviously, I'm just going to drive to and live in San Francisco, which is what I did. Hmm. Uh, right. But I would go to Harvard Square all the time. At the time, if you're walking away from Harvard Square towards Central Square, 
there was a, an incredible record store called Second Coming Records, always tons of bootlegs in there and stuff. And I was just going through the, the bins with a good friend of mine, Brett Becker, and we saw Imperial FFRR. And for those who haven't heard Imperial or haven't seen it, on the cover, it's a very beautifully packaged white background, but there is an insignia for number six records, which I was and remain a huge Prisoner fan. And I had never heard of you guys, and I bought the CD, but just based on the fact that it was out on number six records. The record blew my mind. Still to this day, I listened to it again for the millionth time today, it absolutely blew my mind. And at the time, the synapses were firing, you know, in a Roman candle kind of way, because I'm 20, the drugs are still working, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And everything is new and exciting. And synchronicity was the order of the day. So number six, The Prisoner, I was reading a lot of Robert Anton Wilson, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, William Burroughs, all these things sort of came together in a way that felt like Christmas tree lights that were all strung together. And Imperial was the switch that turned it all on for me and Bavarian mods. Wow, interesting. So in 1995, you guys on an Air Miami tour out in the Midwest, you played a bar. I don't think there were a lot of people there. My friend and his friends, you guys came back to his place and he okay. explained to you in a way because he was too stoned that was not at all <laughs> lucid and apparently you got weirded out and kind of got quiet um huh. that's how it was relayed to me but i'm going to do it in a more lucid way because i'm not stoned and the experience is a very seminal one for me musically i was uh, on lsd with my friend brett he had just purchased the Bavarian Mod single, which was a single that unrested in 1992. The A-side to us felt like this perfect pop song. It still does to this day. Didn't know at the time that it was the first song you'd ever written. You were, I think, 14 when you wrote it. Something like that. 15. Yeah, one, one of the, definitely one of the first songs. Yeah, probably and one of the first complete song. Yeah. B-side is God Gave Rock and Roll to You. But the first side, at the end of that song, there's a needle scratch, like you're taking the needle and dragging it somewhere else on the record. <laughs> uh -huh. And then it repositions itself. And then I don't know if this is actually on the vinyl or if it was just dust on his player, but it sounded like static footsteps that were leaving pop and we're approaching somewhere else and then there is nova scotia which is i mean in some ways a more perfect distillation of of ambient feel and technique than anything that brian eno's ever done and more compact hmm. so it felt like this is pop revolution that induces enlightenment it felt like that was the what i'm going to call inferred revolution that you set out i know there's no question you weren't thinking that but <laughs> the next morning i woke up and everything felt new, like everything was one degree away from everything else. And uh, I somehow felt less uh, alone or less adrift in the world, knowing that the single existed. And from then on, anything that said Teen Beat on it was something I purchased because it all was part of what I saw as an inferred pop revolution and became a central part of my existence. So all that to say that I am super biased tonight. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's great. Well, great to hear. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Your stuff felt like a pop call to arms. I just want to say that for all of you listening out there, all the soldiers of sound, all the lads and ladies who are, you know, maybe new to discography, I'm not sure what 
the name Mark Robinson means to you, nor can I pretend to. But for me, this is an absolute dream come true for the 20 year old me. And if he'd known that one day this would be happening, embarrassingly enough, I'd have been giddy as a little schoolgirl. So I am keeping things on a curve because you and I are rating together. What does that um, mean exactly? So in other words, you know, I'm cognizant that some of your early music was intended sometimes for one person, five people. So let's just say I'm not being nice to them because of that. You know, some things are intended for a broad yeah, audience. I get your point. I well, yeah, we, I guess we can talk about it when we when we come up to it. In a general way, I'm going to move faster until we get to Skinhead Girl, then I'm going to slow down. But I'm not going to bring the microscope fully all the way down for the first five years or so, except for uh, stuff about Teen Beat, which I'm dying mm -hmm. to find out about. Okay, so okay. for those who are tuning in and have no, uh, don't know who Mark is, I would say the most commercially successful band that you were in was Unrest, which released a slew of albums, a slew of singles and EPs. Uh, you guys played at Lollapalooza in 1993, and don't know if this is true, but uh, seemingly turned down a Nirvana opening slot later that year. Yeah, that's true. Your album, Imperial, was voted one of the best of the year by Spin Magazine in 92. And that's chum for people who may not know you. Third grade, you start playing violin, which I don't think you've used on any of your records. Am I right? Uh, not that I recall, no. Okay. So you start playing guitar. You go down to the Harmony Hut. Yeah. And they, they it's Springfield for, Mall. Okay. So this is 1981, right? So that you're 14. I think so, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. It was 99 bucks. It was an Epiphone Genesis. And yep. luckily enough for you, you still, from your current vantage point, loved the guitar. It wasn't like a starter piece of shit. You loved it. Yeah, it's a great guitar. I guess I have played other Epiphones and I've played Gibsons. And I think it was supposed to be a budget guitar, but, you know, it sounded good to me. So I liked it. And it was kind of all I knew for a long time. That was your only guitar for how long? Probably up until 93, maybe. Wow. So that first guitar that your mom drove you down to Harmony Hut to pick up is the yeah. only guitar that you use on all the entirety of the Unrest catalog? I believe so. That's incredible. <laughs> That's fucking incredible. So you didn't take any guitar lessons. You just have an amazing ear and great taste. So you were able to find your way in a way that benefited all of us later on. Henry Cow had a record called Unrest. That was their second album. And on their first album, they had a song called Teen Beat. Actually, it was like Teen Beat huh. Prelude. That's where you got Teen Beat and Unrest from, right? Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. No, I'm kidding. I do, I do know that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, how I would, that's how I would conduct interviews back in the day. I would just yeah, yeah. fan that I didn't know what you were talking about. Go ahead. Sorry. So like a more kick you in the shin version of Bob Dylan in 60. I'm not sure what, what he was doing in 1965. He was very, very <laughs> deflective and, you know, yeah. talking down to reporters. Oh, I don't want to talk down to anybody, but I do like being deflective and incomprehensible. I want to let you know that there's definitely no way I'm going to proceed if you respond to me during a very important section, what I deem to be an important section of your life. And if you are deflective, we'll just stay there until you stop being deflective and mm. then move on. Okay, let's see how it goes. <laughs> okay. I, throwing I, down the gauntlet. I smell a second argument coming up. All right. So for people who don't know the unrest history, the early unrest material is definitely more noisy, abrasive, uh, a little bit more experimental. Mm. Those early tapes are just a boom box set in the room and it just gets put on record. So there's no microphones or anything like that. Yeah. Teen Beat Records. First of all, it's probably my favorite label name ever. It's so great. Huh. 
Thanks. It really is. You lucked out with that one. We have a few questions inserted very judiciously at the opportune moments throughout this epic summit meeting. Michael Dutcher from the Archers of Loaf to Zampano Group asks, did you think that running Teen Beat slowed the growth of your musical endeavors because you had to hmm. split your focus? I don't think I was ever trying to, I don't know what he means by growth of my musical endeavors, but if it means like popularity, I don't think that was ever anything that was considered maybe growth as a songwriter development I, i'm guessing he meant development <laughs> development as a musician i don't know maybe probably who knows are you being evasive i don't think so okay uh, <laughs> is that evasive all right so. <laughs> you should have like an evasive meter like little counter behind you i do it's just it's an internal thing all right so this leads us to phase one which by the way i've designated not you so i'm curious if you think my phase designations are on point or not but i've cut your career up into three phases phase okay. one Incessant teen beat tape creation produces an early masterpiece, 1985 to 1991. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was the features editor of Hustler Magazine, where he served as Larry Flint's editorial point man in his lawsuit against the Pentagon. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who has directed the experimental masterpiece Triple Fisher, described by Screen Slate as, quote, a cacophonous, queasy reduplication of the reel that potently situates the Amy Fisher Joey Buttafuoco affair within the realm of the Baudrillarian hyper reel, where representations proliferate so rapidly and with increasingly obscene detail as to thoroughly leave behind any concern with the grubby facts and what they might reveal about a lonely teenager and her world. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to ending mass incarceration and getting at the root of the crime problem. So crimes don't happen in the first place. If you believe in liberty, justice, and the American way, rhymes with for the hell of it, vote Kapelovitz. I'm Dan Kapelovitz, and I approve this message. May 1st, Ooh. 1985, the self-titled Unrest record comes out, Teen Beat Number 2, originally released only on cassette. You know, it's so interesting to me because you're coming at this from an impossibly ambitious angle, being a kid and having your own label, even though it's just a tape at a time and totally cute and like a low-key thing. But it's inarguable you're an ambitious kid. So it's intriguing to me that the music is, by your own admission, kind of you guys fucking around. Did the ambition level that you had for the label, were there moments where you had that for the music, but you felt like because of the technical inhibitions that you were not able to yet make that leap? The expectations were that we would make this music as it sounded and, you know, the way it sounded and the people at high school would hear it and that was fine. <laughs> okay, okay. To be fair, if I just listened to this tape, had I discovered you in 85, which is not what happened, I would not have connected the dots that you were going to wind up being somebody that I thought of as a legend. <laughs> and to me, it's not yet evident. Everyone's got their growth arc. And one of the incredibly interesting things to me about your career is that I feel that almost in a single moment, like a supernova happened and you willed yourself to become amazing. Hmm. That's the theory I'm going with and I'm riding that into Okay. The when did that happen? <laughs> that happened for Skinhead Girl. Okay. Interesting. 
I feel like everything came together and there is nobody that's ever been on the show or who may even yet be on the show who has had, in my estimation, such a long, unbroken string of perfect releases. But, you know, the most remarkable thing coming back to the self-titled one is just how ambitious you are and how ambitious you were back then. So hmm. I'm seeing everything in the continuum of having wares to hawk at school the next day. One of the things that courses through as a recurring notion the first five years is you're reusing all these songs, like The Hill, for example, appears on mm -hmm. tons of releases. What's the story there? I think the story, yeah, I, I noticed that a lot too when I was kind of re-listening to some stuff today. <laughs> I think it was like well nobody's hearing this and this is one of our best songs like especially with the hill like i remember phil being totally against putting the hill on malcolm x park because that was recorded for the single so that's like it was years old uh, yeah. by the time we put it on malcolm x park the hill's the cherry on the malcolm x park cake without the hill it's a much different record and it doesn't have that feeling of being an album because it's really a beautiful slide into home plate that song that was the one that everyone gravitated towards it was like who is this new band what is this song we have to see them play it was from that song in my opinion that's your first masterpiece is that song thanks but this record, I give two and a half. Two and a half. All right. Again, I think there's some good stuff. Cats is a classic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? By the way, you know what? To me, Cats is a launching point for, I believe, is Sugar Shack. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I will give this a three and a quarter. I should also point out that I think you talked about Feeling Good Fixation, which is one of the B-sides to Yeah, She Is My Skinhead Girl, and that's mm -hmm. Phil. So that's not me. Oh, he, wrote, he to, wrote that? Gotta, yeah, that's him singing too, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, it sounds like Mike Love. I just don't want to make sure people, make sure I'm not taking credit for things I didn't Yeah, no, 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 please correct me because... <laughs> You know, just like you were talking about earlier, one of the reasons I fucking came at you so hard is that you were able to maintain a mysteriousness because of your design aesthetic. So by the time now I'm like an old man, and I'm like, who is that guy that I was obsessed with? So that's <laughs> kind of like, right. you know, so I just want to clear up all my young man questions before sure. I pass from this mortal coil. So <laughs> August 29th, 1985, this is a very busy summer of teen beat output. Lisa Carroll Fremont. So yep. this is Team Beat 6. It was a little too much fucking around for me. Anyway, it was when I was listening. Sure. <laughs> who the fuck cares? I'm just some douche who's, yeah. you know. No. Just, yeah, no, no. So I represent the douches out in the world who are, <laughs> who are, I do. I do because I'm not a muso. I don't read Guitar World magazine. I'm unlearned at my instrument, which is to criticize music. But I represent all of those people who approach music that way. And it went past me when I was listening to it. Mm -hmm. but, but the first side I really like, I'm going to give this one two and a half. Wow. Okay. I feel like we're get, I'm going to get kicked out of school because my grades are so low. Uh... No, no, no. no. It, it, <laughs> you, have a, you have a lengthy career with tons of music. <laughs> um, I'm going to give it a 3.1. Okay. Although, I, yeah, I don't know. I want to do it higher, but then I feel okay, like I'm like full of myself or something. No, if, if that's truly how you feel about it, then... Three and five eights. Three, three and five, five eights. Okay. Yeah. So then we are at your debut single, November 7th, 1985. The Unrest 7-inch comes out. The first 
15-beat vinyl release. It's a really good single. So if I had been following you from the beginning of your career, this would have been the place, I think, where I would have sat bolt upright. So you want to be a rock and roll star, even though this material had been introduced previously, the way that the thing as a unit makes sense and feels right. The Birds cover, so you want to be a rock and roll star, pretty cool punk cover of that and it kind of makes me mm-hmm. think of who's reduce eight miles high which uh totally i yeah. think came later but that's like just as good as the original scott and zelda pretty good but then to have the hill enshrined on a single uh it's got to be the best place to have it it's, <laughs> it's a fucking awesome single this one i give four stars wow okay yeah, I'll go with four, too. <laughs> yes! Sweet. Then we get into a place where I feel like the Wright Brothers plane is, like, taken off. This is my entrance point to you guys. It's in okay. terms of chronology of my life. I mean, I discovered Imperial first. But then the oldest thing that I heard back in the day was this. Malcolm X Park from October 88 is your first great album, in my opinion. I always love this one. Mm-hmm. I've heard it a million times. And it's the early one that sounds the most like the band that you would come to be. All the mm-hmm. other ones sound like a different band to me. Okay. Can you connect can with that, that or, or no? Do you I mean, feel like... It's also the first time we're in like a real studio with like microphones. So I feel like just from a production standpoint. And also we should mention Tim is at college very far away, but I want the band to continue. So we have Dave Park on this record. So there is like a different voice, if you will. Talk Talk to me about Kramer, because first of all, how did you guys link up? What was your way in? Was it Bongwater or was it Galaxy 500? What was your keyhole into the Kramer world initially? Terry Tolkien, who was the mastermind in getting us signed to Caroline, suggested Kramer. Well, it's an interesting pairing. I don't think he's your George Martin in terms of the symbiosis, but it certainly was a hell of a lot closer to a cohesive statement, uh, I feel, than anything mm-hmm. you've done previous to that. So yeah. let's put the microscope down a little bit on this and not skip past it so quickly. So I love the title track, the way it kicks in. It's mm-hmm. mainly a one chord fire starter that kind of always acted as an energy boost intro to the record. And it's kind of as distorto as you'd ever gotten up to this point, right? Probably, yeah. I mean, I think we tried a little with a bit of that on the other on the album before that, but we just didn't have we didn't have the amp- amplifiers and the microphones to make it happen. But yeah, I agree. It's probably the heaviest and the whole stop and start thing is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great intro. And then the acoustic can't sit still. I fucking Mm -hmm. love that. And this, again, is you have an aesthetic initially, which is a creative challenge that excites all you guys, which is you can't play the same kind of thing twice. But here's the first evidence that it's not just a bunch of disparate stuff sitting sometimes in a welcome fashion, sometimes uneasily next to each other. Going from the title track to Can't Sit Still is the first indication that this is an elevated, more eloquent version of that style. They're linking and connecting and helping each other, I feel like. Yeah. I almost feel like, this is going to sound crazy, but I feel like Malcolm X Park is our 
we will rock you and then it goes right into we are the champions that's interesting so you're saying can't yeah. sit still as we are the champions i just feel like they're like a pair we will rock you was like the b-side to we are the champions that doesn't make any sense but no it i understand i mean they're two those are the first two songs we did at the session i remember okay and i remember terry coming down to the studio to see how things were going and kramer was seemingly fairly happy with these two songs that we had done and that was those two songs. Who is that on slide on Can't Sit Still? That's Dave Park. Okay, he did a great right, job. Because he knew he knew how to play the guitar. He he knew how to play the guitar. So he also did the song Ragged, which I think has the paper on it. Okay, yeah, the first two fucking amazing strutter so the whole thing of cover songs i feel like oh. you know up until now you you know it's stuff like wild thing and the batman theme but strutter i think is a great cover i wasn't really 100 percent into kiss as a kid but my friend brett and i we used to all the time all the fucking time go hey, everybody we got rock and roll ammonia I mean, always yeah. quoting this song, and it was kind of my keyhole introduction to Kiss. I kind of totally. came to Kiss through you. <laughs> but yet it still has your personality stamped on it, uh, especially with the, the humor. Tim Bugby from the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook group asks, if the replacements cover of Black Diamond inspired your take on Strutter, and what is your favorite Kiss record? I guess I did know of the replacements. I don't think I have ever owned any replacement songs, so I'm not even sure I know that version. Hmm. But I'm going to check it out. It's great. Uh, Let It Be is incontestably a great record. So you, it's Right, right, right. I'll listen to it, and then maybe I'll be like, oh yeah, of course I heard that. Christine is one of my all-time favorite songs by you of any of your periods and then the hill found its true home here wow that's nice to hear because yeah I, I think i said earlier that it just kind of feels like it doesn't fit in here do you remember what inspired you to write that yeah i know i remember teenage love whatever that kind of yeah. thing high school i mean because i'm feeling it every time i hear that ascending bass riff there's just a mood to it it's gonna move me when i'm you know god willing 80 years old this release i'm gonna give four and a half Wow. Like I said, I think it's kind of amazing. the bar. <laughs> it's going to get there um, to where you're embarrassed to be hearing all the fives. Yeah. I'll give us a 4.1. Okay. So then comes March 1st, 1989 single Catch Pellet. Right. Uh, something I had not heard before doing research. Yep. I'm positive that Communist Heart, the A-side, and probably Real Enemy were recorded during the sessions for the first album. So this is the first Unrest record that Bridget is singing on. Oh, I did, okay. So she's on the, the track Real, Real Enemy. This is before she's doing God or Democrats and Velocity Girl. also wanted to ask about Butch Vig, because I know uh -huh. he's... How did you cross paths with him? Back in the day, you know, these are this is mixed down to quarter-inch tape, and I had no way of, like, splicing this thing up to be able to send it to the record company. So I just called the local indie studio guy and that just happened to be butch fig so at the time he was some schmo i, I wouldn't say that i think I mean, no he was actually knew, i actually knew of him because i think he was he had recorded like uh, a lot of touch and go stuff this one i give two stars all right i'll give it a uh 2.4 I feel like the apotheosis of you guys mainly kind of trying to go for more of a timely thing that connects with a current music scene reaches its apex on Custom Kernel. Yeah, totally true. Like, I remember going in the studio and instead of using my Sears Silvertone amp that I had bought years ago, I used the Marshall that was in the studio. But again, a lot of it is song selection. 
Do you have a fascination with all things Rat Pack, or is it mainly Sammy? Uh, mainly Sammy. Because I was going to say, there was a week of my life where I was Jerry Lewis's driver on the last film he ever did. And holy shit, uh, it was wow. incredible. <clears throat> and I just want to tell you one story that's definitely worthy of relaying that I have not told on air. But I knew all kinds of stuff to say to him to keep him engaged so that he was hesitant to get out of my car and get into makeup. <laughs> so my car would always be surrounded by production aides who were looking at their watch and tapping their foot. And this one particular time we were talking about early appearances with Dino and this woman walks by who was uh, in the costume department. She was admittedly not a looker. He stops what he's saying as she's walking by and then just goes, God wasted a cunt on that. I just, that's what Jerry Lewis said. That's what Jerry Lewis said. And I actually, for the entirety, every second I spent in the car with him, I had a portable recorder shoved up my sleeve surreptitiously. So at some point, I'm going to dig that out and I'll send it to you. Wow, cool. And I'm going to put it on one of my singles or the end of one of my tapes. <laughs> I, I would, I would <laughs> use it as, as you wish, my friend. Seriously. I, I would be honored. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now, every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discography's Patreon family, the Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personal personalized backstage pass for a buck. And for the cheapskates, homeless people, and all the bums sponging off mom and dad, don't care, just join. It's now completely free to join as a basic member, and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming Lou Barlow, Corey Hansen, Mark Robinson comp, Metal Machine Muzak, as well as the triple album rock opera Elf Harmony I created with Joe Kennedy as the mentally regarded, and the ability to purchase one-off Patreon episodes. That's it, back to the show. So an important thing happens, which is that we entered 1990. That's notable because as far as I'm concerned, you're one of the people who owned the 90s. So um, <laughs> I don't give a shit how that comes off to you. But to me, you ran with that decade and you turn into a different band and th different things started happening. But your first release of the 90s was decidedly an 80s unrest sounding affair. Uh, April 6, 1990, in a co-release with Caroline, Custom Colonel Blaxploitation. This one, to me, is like your pure rock and roll album, which seems strange to me based simply on the timing, because you had just seemingly started to learn how to properly balance your various styles on Malcolm X Park, and then you double down, triple down, quadruple down on one sound, mainly. It either feels like a regression or a steam letting off exercise, and it's also uncharacteristic of you, very heavy and dark, and influenced by 
Or I would even say albatrossed by the music of that time. Um, I think you're probably right. <laughs> Especially with Caroline. Caroline had a lot of like heavy bands at the time. Yeah. White Zombie was one of them. And so I think that was, and the touch and go stuff, you know, as well. So I do have to agree with you. I think there's, t- there's too many hard songs on here. However, if this was like a Metallica album, he'd be like, whoa, they're doing all sorts of crazy shit on here. But for an unrest record, it does seem very of one genre. It could be the record by you that I understand as far as conceptually why it was given birth to, why it's probably the hardest one for me to understand. Hmm. And always has been, especially given the timing. Uh, We have a question actually from Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook group member Jason Cooley, who asks... I've always wondered if invoking the Godhead was Melvin's influenced. It almost kind of has like early swans kind of feel to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Very kind of chunky. It's almost like maybe, or even maybe like a slowed down Malcolm X Park, the title track. I think that was the other thing is we did Malcolm X Park, the song was probably one of the favorites from that. And that kind of put us in this harder direction. Um, yeah, yeah. But I also, again, would point to song selection and like, She Makes Me Free to Be Me could have been on this record. You know, there could have been, it could have been a different record, I guess is what I mean. By the way, there's something I neglected to say, which is that Wharton Tears came on. That's a very, very important thing because he's your George Martin. (laughs) He definitely comes on board. Then it's hard to not notice that almost directly after you guys take it into such a high gear. Did you feel like you had found the guy at the time or did it take a while for that to sink in? Um, I mean, he's just like a really friendly, easy to get along with guy. And he would even have his, his studio was just like perfectly set up. Everything just sounded great. All right. So uh, I give this one two and a half stars. I guess I look at it and I'm like, well, I I like that song. I like that song individually. I like the songs, but I think, yeah, as a whole, it's probably not the best unrest record so i'll give it a 3.9 i'm going to tell you how the next album after this one came about in terms of song selection and well anyway let's i'm going to let you uh, be the host here <laughs> well you could take over too man this is going to be like ingmar bergman's persona when we're done with <laughs> so phase two yeah. pure pop revolution no hitter 1991 okay. To 1997 and this is of course subjective just in case you anyone needs a reminder of that although my opinion is as close to scientifically objective as an opinion gets but i want to talk now about jennifer lopez because if you go back and look at jennifer lopez i'm not a fan but if you go back and i don't hate her either of her, whatever of her acting she's an actor and a singer correct yeah she's a good actress she's a ridiculous yeah. singer and frankly except for the movie out of sight by steven Soderbergh. I can't think of anything great she's done. But early on in her career, when she was on In Living Color, she was a fly girl, a dancer. If you look at her, I would call her, you know, maybe not unattractive, but I wouldn't call her attractive either. And then something happened where it's like she willed herself. She willed herself to become beautiful and then became beautiful and became successful in every medium. And I feel like that happened with you because all of a sudden, you started putting out records one after the other with incredible rapidity and the quality yardstick was insane you were putting out tons of stuff on on team beat now this i'm just one guy's opinion 
but you know you've been releasing records for a while and you know while i thought malcolm x park was insanely good there's very little that would lead me to believe that you would become one of my favorite songwriters of all time and it just starts and just does not let up so something clicked also i think you started doubling down on the pop inclinations that you had where you became less of an art band was there anything that occurred around that time that were you like quote unquote trying to get serious about music or living more young man's perspectives behind in your quest to have a career in music Mm -hmm. what was going on i mean there was no like quote career in music that was being targeted or anything like that but you wanted but to i do think it was every day for the rest of your life it couldn't have not crossed your mind about this being a career right um, you know all, all the 90s slack stuff aside i don't know about you but i was kind of born with ambitions to have projects and to never stop and so the idea mm-hmm. of it not being a career seemed wildly crazy to me Sure. I mean, I think when you say career, it sounds like you're making a lot of money. No, I, and that mean, wasn't I don't happening. mean that. Paying your bills. Oh, paying the bills. So it sounds like money. Right. Yeah, no, there was no assumption that that was going to happen or that would happen. But at the same time, rent back back then in D.C. and probably other places, you would live in a house with other friends. And so if you got a house that had a rent of $900 and had three bedrooms and you could fit two extra people in there, maybe like in the basement, your rent was $200 yeah. a month. So if you worked at a record store and you could go on tour because your rent was so cheap. But also I think it was... You know, I was getting older, I was getting more experienced in writing songs. We didn't want to do like covers on the records anymore. And Dave had left the band. So it was just me and Phil. We're just not there yet. I'm talking skinhead. No. Oh, that's right. Skinhead Girl is Justin. Skinhead Girl is with Justin. And you Did had we... Calvin and yeah. Kramer behind the boards on that one. <laughs> well, the other thing is, is even though things appear to be serious, they are not serious. So there's always a joke in there somewhere. I don't think Kramer had anything to do with that record. Well, Kramer what? apparently remixed it. It's on the website. Yeah, we did remix it at Kramer's, yes. And Calvin, we put him on there as producer because it was on his label. To me, this is your I want to hold your hand. It's like the, the derivation point of the onslaught of what was to come. So this came out March 16th, 1991. I was not mm-hmm. aware of it quite at the time. Side one. 91. Wow. Yeah. Did Hall immediately start covering the song or how long did it take for Courtney well, Love th- to discover that? I don't remember exactly. I feel like that was recorded probably almost a year before it came out because Justin was in the band. It was probably like June of 90, something wow. like that. So it was like yeah. kind of just after like Custom Carnal had been released. And I feel like it is different, but I feel like it's also not terribly different than Teenage Suicide. So I almost almost would go back to Teenage Suicide and say, like, that's where things changed, maybe. It's interesting. I don't see that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Skinhead Girl, it's amazing to me that you were kind of sitting on that for 10 months. I never sit on things. But when other people are releasing things, they have to fit them into their schedule. Got it. So that was a K teen beat thing. I think the single is a masterpiece. You know, the thing is a piece together and how the three tunes fit is incredible. You get to tackle these three very disparate things. You have a pop classic, you have, you know, a Noi highway driving song, and then a one minute, it's like if you took the Beach Boys and melted it down into an extract, mm-hmm. you would get feeling good fixation. Yeah, this is a definite five star piece. There's no question about it. Five stars, wow. Okay. Four point 
too. Yeah, to me, sure. this is your, this is like you guys firing a flare, and then the flare okay. just never disappears. So I feel like the flare happened on the next recording session, which the next one you're coming up with. Well, here. so I have a couple that don't have dates, and so I just put them in mm -hmm. as best I could. But the next one I have that is a date is April eighth, ninety one, a factory record. Oh, okay, interesting. So that was the so, March 91 installment of the Sub Pop Records Singles Club. And there are four uh -huh. songs that are covers of songs by four different artists from the Manchester factory scene. Yep. And I would say that when it all comes down is another clarion call for Unrest Mach 2. Hmm. I like the factory record thing, but I feel like we're just way too close. Like we didn't really do much with those songs. It's almost like we wanted to play everyone like, hey, these are our favorite songs. <laughs> Can you guys listen to our favorite songs that maybe you haven't heard before? And so we almost did. They're just like so similar to the originals. Which is not a terrible thing. I mean, there's a whole bunch of there's like a network of subterranean stuff that I had discovered just becoming a fan of your work. For example, I didn't know who the Marine Girls were. For the longest time, mm -hmm. I thought Love to Know was your song. Because Bridget is singing to Mark. So I figured, you know, I didn't do anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> I feel like when it all comes down is another unrest Mach 2 template. I don't necessarily, I'm not totally in love with the rest of it, but when it all comes down, feels like an important moment for you guys. It's an amazing wow. cover. Uh, I love the, I mean, the dun, 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 uh, those moves when you're singing happy. I love it, man. I mean, I thank you, but I would also say all those great parts are just ripped from the original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll give this four stars. Okay. Um, sure. Four stars. Okay. I like when we agree. Um, <laughs> all right. 1991 sub pop single. I don't know exactly what date it came out, but when it all comes down, is Bridget on that or no? She's not, right? That's just okay. me and Phil. And then I'm proud to have reminded you that you were on the incredible compilation Guitarists from 1991. Mm -hmm. You did the theme song and that shit rules. It's so Thanks. good. I love, you know, when you get intensely aggressive about your playing sometimes, there's a real power determination and it comes across with flying colors on this track i give this five stars wow cool thanks i give it four stars that one i was just kind of lucky that terry the guy who ran number six records like asked me to be on there <laughs> Great yeah. comp, man. I used to listen to that all the time. And then I'm so curious why, I don't know if this is the exact time here that this came, but I don't have a date. So Winona Ryder, why was that not released? As a single. Well, we can get to that when we get to Imperial. the Imperial record. Okay. I give Winona Ryder five stars. Can we rate a record that never came out? <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. To me, the reason is because I always thought about it as one of your regular tunes. It just, okay. I never separated it from anything else you did during that time. It was okay. another Mark classic. So that's five stars for me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the idea, my idea was to do a single, so to go along with the Imperial record. And it was going to be Winona Ryder. I, I don't know. I guess both versions were going to be on it. Or, we, or I wanted to do like two separate singles or something ridiculous. And I think Terry was like, I don't, I don't think this is that good. And it's not a good idea. It's also another cover. It's like, how many covers do we need to do? Who did the uh, the original? I've never heard it. Family Fodder. Oh, you should look it up. Family Fodder. That, that'll be your new favorite band. You think so? How come? Because they're great. <laughs> what kind of... They did a song called Debbie Harry. Deborah Harry. Are they just doing songs about women with women's names? Family Fodder? I mean, that's just one of their many songs. Well, Debbie Harry, Winona Ryder, are the songs just... No, no, no. Women? Sorry. We covered 
the Deborah Harry song, and we called it Winona Ryder, and we changed the lyrics. Okay, got it. We, like, updated it for modern times. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Redux. What do you give this? Slap a number on this bad boy. The Winona Ryder single, It Never Happened? Yes. It's like a 3.1 or something. See, here's where your ratings are going to just pale next to mine. This whole streak, probably. So the next thing I have is later placed on the BPM comp, and it mm. is the Cherry Cherry single. Cherry Cherry single, it's a different performance, right? Whole different thing than Cherry Cream. Different Mom. performance? Well, I mean, it's a whole well, different the, thing. The single came out before the album. The single is recorded like a whole entire year before the album is recorded, the Imperial album. And the one that's on the album is just a remix. Phil was against that too. Because <laughs> he's like, it's already, we already put it out. Like, why are we, it's kind of like when we put the hill on Malcolm X Park. It's kind of like, right. but I just thought it was so good and it only came out in England. I was like, this is kind of too good not to leave off the album. You made the right decision. There's no question. So, I mean, it's a classic, dude. This song is so good. And then Wednesday and Proud. First of all, I got to ask you, are you at all a dead fan? Um, No, okay, I shouldn't say that publicly. If you want me to cut it out, I will. But this to me, always, <laughs> it always betrayed a dead influence that otherwise seems to be uh -huh. completely absent from your work. Completely right. No, absent. I can hear. I mean, the, I didn't have any like older brothers or anything like that. I never knew the Beatles, but I knew Wings. You know what album by Wings is so redolent of your stuff is Wildlife. I'm not sure. I know, I know like um, London Town. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to check out Wildlife. I think I know the cover. And, and what I'm referring to is there's moments on there where he's just had his kids, totally super domestic at this point, more about sort of tilling the fields with his kids hanging out with goats than he was about trying to break down the mystery of how to write songs. They yeah. were just domestic homilies. And, you know, he was using kind of dummy lyrics as if and I've been thinking about this all week. You're the kind of guy, I think, you know, the story of how he wrote yesterday, right? So he had these dummy lyrics that was scrambled eggs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. That was one of one of my first songs was called scrambled eggs. I think after I heard that story, that doesn't surprise me at all, because I feel like you're a guy who embraces the subconscious mystery of the dummy lyric. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my dummy lyrics or whatever you call it, like when you're trying to come up with a vocal melody and you just kind of sing whatever it is, you, a lot you of those... throw something in and then those are replaced usually, but that's where the magic is because you're not thinking about it. It's coming out of a deep place. Right. And I think a lot of times I was going to say they end up in the song. <laughs> um, Which is I, a I was... very unique Mark Robinson aesthetic. Huh. Okay. So that bed of wandering guitars, I always found that to be so moving and so heartbreaking. And it's super sweet. You just stuck what I think is a great song, stuck it kind of unceremoniously tucked into the back of this single, and it only comes up as a bonus track in the future, but this is a key work, I think. I agree. Could you feel this was a turning point moment for you and for the band? Yeah, I feel like it was, again, it was just like a reaction to the previous record. And it was just kind of like, let's hone our thing. We're going to cut the joke stuff out a little bit. It's going to be minimal also just because it's just me and Phil. I did come up with a bass line and played bass on Cherry Cherry. And that's you on bass on Suki too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean... Jesus, dude. There was a lot of bass playing because we didn't have a bass player for a while. And then even when Bridget came on, I think I was still playing on a lot of the stuff just because there wasn't enough time to have her learn the stuff before we went in the studio. But shoot, I had a good point I was going to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't remember. 
I'm going to stop talking for minutes, and you just sit and <laughs> Oh, hi. Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. This single is a hard five for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I was pretty happy with it. What do you give this one? Uh, yeah, like a 4.7 or something. Oh, you son of a gun. You're being hard on yourself. All right. January 27, 1992. We basically had already covered this, but Bavarian Mods and Other Hits, which mm-hmm. I love the title because the title makes you feel like it's a complete work that's not just a single that's been around for 10 years. It says most of the songs were recorded during Imperial. Which one was not? Well, is Bavarian it? Mods was definitely recorded during Imperial. I mean, this is one of my favorite singles of all time. You know, the first side alone is a thing of magisterial pop beauty and wonder. It's just, <laughs> I mean, and to think that that's your first song is crazy. It's like you had the template for Mach 2 ready before you had the sound ready for Unrest hmm. Mach 1. Interesting. Yeah, it always kind of fit in, like we played it live constantly in the early 90s, but it always sounded to me, maybe just because I knew that I had written it in 1982 and not 1992, um, it always just sounded like an old song to me. I think that's the only one from the album. God Gave Rock and Roll to You, that was done by Kiss and Argent, right? It's an Argent song. Right, yeah. right. And you modified the lyrics. Yeah, and then... Um, when Kiss did their version, I believe it was for the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure soundtrack. They called theirs God Gave Rock and Roll to You 2, and then I called ours God Gave Rock and Roll to You 3. <laughs> nice. A lineage like a Harry Smith thing, an oral tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you give this? Um, I don't know, 3.8? This 3.8 star single? fucking changed my life this thing really, it really <laughs> nice. changed my life in some ways i feel like this 45 reworked the fuse box of my being in ways especially because i encountered it on lsd that are nearly impossible to either verbalize or understand for me but there's a template for pop perfection that's encoded in the DNA of this single, not just the title track, but the whole thing. And it's just a real beautifully, perfectly made object. Wow. Moving forward. That's good to hear. It really is just amazing. Because there were so many people asking us to do singles at the time. That was like the one that we probably put the least energy into. So it's wow. good to hear. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it feels like it's so worked out on a microscopic level. It's so funny, man. Two days before recording begins on an album called Imperial FFRR, you and Bridget attend the Morrissey Frank Melissa Ferrett concert mm. at Madison Square Garden in New York on July 13th, 91. Mm-hmm. Does that have any bearing whatsoever on the outcome of the record? Absolutely not. Okay, good. Um, good to hear. That was my first arena show. Oh, that's interesting. Because my mother wouldn't let me see. Uh, I had opportunities to see Kiss and Queen, I believe. But at the age of, you know, 10 or something. So she wasn't willing to let me go. So that was my first arena show. It was fun. So let me hone the question then. Does the vibe of going to see a band where there's so many audience members there, does that have any kind of bearing on you trying to broaden the scope of your ambition for the band? No. You keep... I mean, I think the only ambition is I like doing this. I want to keep doing this. There's no ambition to like okay. do anything else. There's no ambition to play at Madison Square Garden. Although if somebody asks me, I would probably be interested. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say stuff like that. Cause you know, at this point you're making what could very fairly be deemed as pop music. Pop music is not Henry Cow. 
It's easily digestible. It's got a candy coating mm. to it. So, you know, even though you're coming at it from a punk DIY perspective, yeah. this is pop music to me. Well, true. But if you look at all these singles, I think like Wednesday and Proud, is that a pop song? I don't know. And if you look, at, I feel like if you look like people are like, oh, you did some great pop songs. If you take those out of that uh, unrest Mach 2, as you call it, it's not the giant part of the material it's just one element of what we're doing <laughs> yeah but to be fair by the time we get to you know a year down the line you are purposely consciously attenuating your sound on perfect teeth that was i believe from what i've researched was a conscious decision to do that conscious decision to do what to just to... go all right let's cut out firecracker let's cut out oh Shack. let's just go for yeah pops. right in terms of reacting to custom carnal and how it was very heavy and that heavy stuff kind of overshadowed the whole record imperial was supposed to be kind of like we're getting back to basics we're going back to tink of southeast we're going to be like every song is different we're going to do weird stuff everything is going to be completely different although suki is kind of you know not miles away from cherry cherry but no, for the no, most they're, part they're brother and sister those too I, they, those go together right but i think other than that i think we were successful in like each track or you know i wasn't i was gonna say song but they're not really all songs are pretty different from each other and then we you know we we decided bavarian mods is not going to go on there because because it sounds like a little too fun or maybe it's not fitting in with the the aesthetic winona yeah. Ryder, the same same thing it's like a little silly so we're going to leave that off yeah there is a stateliness about the record where those songs would not have fit Right. So it's kind of the first like serious unrest record. If you take out like if you, if you're not paying attention to the in jokes that might be in the lyrics that only I know about. Right, right, right. <laughs> These little lyrical curly cues like this girl is swirl, but you have so many of these. I don't mean it in any kind of pejorative way, but the glory of the of the subconsciously perfect dummy lyric. There's a lot of stuff like that and moments like in Suki, where you say, keep repeating, keep repeating, is beyond genius to me, because it's like you're reading from discarded bric-a-brac from lyric sheets. <laughs> right. And, and yet, yeah. it's like you've melted down the essence of this kind of approach and have created an extract where it's like the dummy lyrics are the only kind of lyric that would work. And first of all, let me start by saying that this to me is one of the all time greatest records that's ever been made. Mm -hmm. And that this, you know, put you in a different position as a band for sure. I know that I, I remember at the time, although I didn't go back and look at all your press, but Spin Magazine had a huge boner for you guys. <laughs> It was you guys, Teenage Fan Club, and Nirvana. I remember were the three bands that they were pushing at that time. So you had to have been cognizant that this was connecting with people on a much bigger level. It was kind of like putting out the first Unrest record. Because there was like, all of a sudden it was like, oh, something's happening. But I think we noticed it more in terms of people from England calling us, asking us to put out a European edition. So we could tell that there was something going on there. But as far as spin goes, I'm not sure that's correct. I think we were like, 
there was like a eighth of a page right up with a picture. I think that was pretty much all we got in spin. <laughs> oh, is that the case? I remember yeah. like a yearly roundup where you guys ranked really high. And I'll be honest with you, man. I've always liked Nevermind. It's a great record. This had a much bigger impact on me than Nevermind. No, I just mean that we were included in some like best top thing at the some list but the way you're presenting it sounded like we were on the cover with like nirvana every like every other month or something like that which was not the case okay (laughs) i I wasn't i wasn't a regular reader of spin i just remember that they were into you guys was this recorded in four days that sounds right yeah i mean we always recorded quickly so everything was like first take if it could be you know maybe i do remember we did loyola was like we were struggling with that one i think we sped it up because it's so slow and the drum beat is kind of interesting but other than that it's probably like first or second takes where everything it was different weekends i can't remember if it was the first or the second weekend like a lot of it i was just there by myself wharton would occasionally he lived upstairs so the studios in the basement and he was upstairs for i don't know like half an hour or longer and so that's when i wrote isabel and that was just me in the studio and i think a few of the other things i kind of just you know did on my own like imperial i think i probably did by myself and then phil came in and did the drums later and things like that and then i think we did one weekend we did another weekend where it was like the band songs so we did like june obviously which is incredible i do believe you're blushing and loyola i think there was like the band songs and then everything is kind of like you know just me and phil on some song just me on one song and that kind of thing there's almost like a sergeant pepper vibe to the record it's always felt like a sergeant pepper type experience where it's almost exhausting emotionally all the places that you go (laughs) really it always has been for me it's a journey and you know it's a clearly marked journey suki there's no fun story though there's no fun story like sergeant peppers (laughs) what's the story there they all grew mustaches (laughs) and hunkered down in front of a tascam four track that's all okay let's go through this one slowly it's deserving of that so kicks off with a volume reference tone a glorious volume reference tone i might add suki is like a platonic ideal of a pop song it's one of my favorite songs of all time your strum style is out of control spot on the one note bass run which i didn't even know was you until recent very recently doing the research for this your bass work is perfect nothing to denigrate from bridget or what she would have brought to it but you couldn't have hit it any further out of the park i can't even remember the baseline <laughs> it's just it's very simple you're just like threading the <laughs> okay needle. and then okay. um phil's phil's it sounds like jiffy pop kernels exploding right off the stove <laughs> um the kicking 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 all the you know dummy lyric repetition spells total godhead to me it's pure light emotion i used to play this song all the time wherever i went and it's also a reminder of the greatest fount of true vitality in which i've ever had the great pleasure to bathe my entire being in this is like a mood the only other song that's like it is cherry cream on okay yeah right it's funny for a band that has the vibe based on the band name you would think would be a punk band then you find out it's art rock derived and then you find out that you know the guy who's behind it all has the capacity to write literally perfect pop songs but isn't even aware of it until (laughs) almost 10 years into his career the whole thing i believe that is a great story yeah i mean i like christine as a pop song but i guess it's different but there's a vitality yeah i see what you're saying you you know what i mean there's like a whip crack vitality to this that is Mm -hmm. so so immediate no matter what you're going through 
pulls you into the song immediately. You know, the lessons you learn from the, let's say, less organized disparity of earlier days brings you to Suki going into Imperial, right? Yeah. I mean, because at this point, it's not just about chucking it all randomly. There is, and I don't know sequencing-wise if it was ever a random thing, but now this is what feels to me like very considered. It's a very considered, yeah. very, very smart track listing to me. It's perfectly sequenced. Yeah. The sequencing was always like, I mean, not every session I've been in, but like even when I was like producing other bands, it happens pretty quickly usually. <laughs> it's like, oh, the album's done. Oh, what do you, oh now we got to figure out what order the songs go in. But yeah, it's almost like um, I'm just for some reason thinking of uh, Malcolm X Park. You have your like kind of loud tune and then you got your soft tune right after that right right yeah the way it goes into imperial and the sort of almost bell-like tone on your guitar has always been a thing of wonder to me and i know it's been a thing of wonder to you because the descending riff either exactly as is or slightly modified is something you return to through your career like a similar thing yeah i feel like you're as entranced by your own riff as mm -hmm. i am on this one right i felt like i didn't explore that enough so later on <laughs> when we go to part six of this podcast um <laughs> i was trying to explore that a little more in like the early 2000s yeah i love this song the wine glass at the end it truly is the sound of eternity for me it goes on for i believe seven minutes or so it doesn't feel long imperial mm -hmm. is a, a thing of greatness and a thing of mystery and wonder and <laughs> it, it is and it has served that purpose for me for quite some time and the track placement after the heart-pounding intensity of Suki to then sort of empty out into this thing is almost a reset. And then comes I Do Believe You Are Blushing, which is another yeah. song that is just absolutely perfect. It's as close as is humanly possible to pure pop perfection. The moving parts in the song are like a perfectly performing Swiss watch to me, and it has such an intense logic to it. What's going on with Why Miss K, I Do Believe It? Is that an inside joke you're willing to explain? No, not at all. I guess it's not really a woman I dated, <laughs> but it's a woman I met on a boat. There is this boat, I think we met there, called the Frying Pan in New York, mm -hmm. that has shows. I think it's still there. So we met on this boat, and then we just like stayed up like all night with each other. We went to like Veselka's Ukrainian diner, and we ended up like sleeping in Central Park, like on the grass. Wow. <laughs> Did she become a girlfriend or was this just an isolated experience? It was pretty much just an isolated experience. I, th I thought that she was going to become a girlfriend, but apparently that was not the case but, or she wasn't thinking that. So like a before sunrise kind of a thing. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. I mean, it was a cool night just to like sleep outdoors in Central Park is probably something that people don't do on purpose <laughs> you know, if they have other yeah. options. That wouldn't even be on a bucket list, but to be able to write it on one and then check it off is a cool ambition to have. I'm glad that now that the mystery's gone from that line, it's replaced by something equally cool. Hmm, um, nice. Then I should also say there's all there's so many bits of lyrics of other songs that I put into my songs as well. So like that title is from the movie Mermaids. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. So do you have a notebook of just random stuff that you like that you've heard? No, I was just really into that. You know, I think Winona Ryder's in that. So I was just like, there was this one line in the, in the movie and it just kind of stuck out to me. So I just used it. That's all. That was one that really stood out for myself and my friend Brett, who you spent an awkward night at his place. Yeah, I do believe you are blushing goes into, you know, again, we 
enter into, you know, everything has to be different. Can't play the same thing twice. Champion Nines, which the working title was Meditation. To me, this one always struck me as solid enough atmosphere and it helps prop up Sugar Shack because the manic intensity of Sugar Shack explodes from how slowed down this is. But if I was going to pick a least favorite song on the record, it'd be this one. Okay, I can see that. You know, tell me about your take on Champion Nines. I mean, it's like a sample, I believe, of something. Maybe from a Madonna record or something, <laughs> like the drum beat. Oh, really? Um, and then I played bass on top of it. And then I think there's a lot of bells. Yeah, there's right? like a whirling sound, almost like a mellow fire engine, but not quite. Wharton had all these bells and what do you call them? Jingle bells and cowbells and things like that, which we discovered like a year earlier when we were doing Cherry Cherry. I just kind of reused all that stuff and kind of went crazy on that. I think that's one of the tracks that's just me. Yeah, it's just the drum sample. I'm playing bass and then I added all those bells. And then the title again is just like a weird thing. It's like named after the athletic brand champion yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I remember dressed to the nines yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. right. dressed to the nines and champion <laughs> so already you're doing cotton candy stuff back here <laughs> maybe yeah yeah you're like planting commercial seeds well i had an idea actually at some point to make jingles out of all these songs it wasn't serious but i had a jingle for each one so like cherry cream on was cherry cola cherry you know cherry coke cherry cola that's awesome that would have been amazing it almost feels like rave music like when people are leaving a rave mm -hmm. were you into dance music from that time did you go to those kinds of you know last no. minute no okay i figured not i liked the happy mondays a lot but i didn't know that they existed probably somewhere they were happening well sugar shack is definitely my favorite of the album's instrumentals no question as much as i like the artier stuff this album just the way that it sort of corners the pop thing is so alluring for me. So this almost has a Roadrunner Saturday morning cartoon feel to it. Hmm. Wow, interesting. I don't know where the idea came from, but I think in my head... It was kind of like a rockabilly thing. Yeah, it's still got that. It's still yeah. almost like a, like a punk skiffle. Yeah, it's like a punk rockabilly thing. It's like our um, crazy little thing called love, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got more energy than that song. The shuffling yeah. rhythm, that's, that's Phil, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his drum work on this is fantastic. Right. I mean, I couldn't play that. There's just such an immediacy to it. And also, it feels like it tilts left and how it moves. So, you know, it's like both in the pocket, yet threatening to collapse at any second. And hmm. I think that's the tension in it that keeps it interesting always. And the cherry on the cake is that lone open note that rings out through the verses. That is total divinity. And that's hmm. also the plus of not knowing how to play your instrument, quote unquote. You can be okay with just the one note, the one open note that rings out just because all you're relying on is your ear to tell you that it sounds good. And, you know, that's the, part of the magic of unrest, I think. Yeah, I definitely liked the open note stuff a lot. Some of that originated from strings breaking and then not having enough money to go buy another s set of strings. <laughs> That's how you know you're poor if you can't afford a string. <laughs> Speaking of, I mean, how are you subsisting at this point? Are you, did you have a day job at this point? This is 91. So I was living at my mom's house and I was working at Olson's Books and Records in Old Town, I think. Okay, that's side one. Okay, it's a great fucking first side. 
So when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag-off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Side two, you know, has the record version of Isabel. The record version? Well, the LP version, because the EP came out later, which has a very different feel to it. Yeah, that's Um, kind of more like the Champion Nines version of Isabel. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Isabel was, okay, so like you had said earlier, written by you during a break. So how quickly, and the working title was Bookshelves, and the first Mm. song recorded for the record. How quickly did this come to you? I mean, uh, Wharton had to go upstairs, and so I just grabbed the guitar, started playing. I mean, it couldn't have been more than, I don't know. 10 or 15 minutes, but I was kind of like, this is pretty good. Maybe we should record this. That's really It sounded amazing. cool. And so it was different I- than the other stuff that we had ready for the record. Yeah. And then it, this, I believe, was the first release from the record on single, or was it not? Did Suki come out as a single? No. Well, that's just madness. Yeah. Total, I mean, Cherry Cherry madness. is the first single from yeah. the record, but we didn't know the album existed at the time. <laughs> that's the one and only single, I think. And then Isabel, does that even count? Because it's so different. I don't know. It's yeah. so different. Both versions are amazing. I'm curious which one you prefer, if you have a preference. First one, the album one. The album one. It's a great song. And the funny thing about a song that comes that quickly, and I know you saw that we just had a five-week run of Terry Kirkman from The Association. And then the day after his last episode aired, he died. And the reason I bring it up is because his song Cherish, which is one of the most popular songs of all time with regard to radio play, it came to him in, he says, seven Mm -hmm. minutes. So Mm -hmm. I'm not comparing this to Cherish, but what I'm saying is it just came out of you. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard the song, been moved by it. I got the EP, which we'll get to. The EP was like this magical moment in my life. And I tie the whole thing Mm -hmm. together and it belongs part and parcel with Isabel. And to know that that just came tumbling out of you, there's such a magic to the process of something like that. Yeah, it's weird. I record a lot with my friend Trevor and all of a sudden we make something that we like and then we're thinking like seven minutes ago that didn't exist, (laughs) you know? Right, right. And it's just kind of interesting how it's like there's nothing and then there's something. What's your relationship with the song's afterlife and the meanings? You know, when I tell you that all this meaning came rushing at me from stuff that probably was not fraught with any of that stuff, I'm wondering how that hits you or how that has historically hit you, hearing people attach themselves to your work like that from somebody who who you're telling me was not ambitious was not looking to fill up the stadium you occupied two days before you went into recording period <laughs> i mean it's crazy it's amazing a lot of people have said that they named their kid isabel after that song which is crazy yeah there was a time it was like every room i was in suki was playing i mean every fucking wow. room it like had to be on <laughs> isabel's a stunning ballad and then again in terms of pacing you know we're back with cherry cream on which is 
like you said, a remix of the title track from the single. And this, to me, like I said, it's his Suki's sister. It's like, you know, it's really nice to have a mirror image on the B-side, hmm. to have those reflective. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And I feel like, except for Kath Carroll, which is another sister of these two, you could do an album of just those kinds of songs, <laughs> and right. it would be just fucking insane. It would be great. <laughs> uh, I know you don't like that. It's antithetical to the rule. But these types of songs that you write... It's like Chapman and Chin in the 70s who wrote those bubblegum hits. In the 70s? I don't know. Yeah, like the guys who wrote for The Sweet, even Boyce and Hart, you know, monkey songs. It's not as easy as it sounds because you're not playing tons of different notes. Right. Not just anyone can the do. The Corporation. The Corporation did those Jackson 5 songs. Right. Dumb, brilliant, basically. So Cherry Creamon is unbelievable. It's about a blowjob, right? No, definitely not. No? <laughs> no. Okay, I misread the song for my entire life. Then Firecracker, my word of advice to the listener is to submit to the drone and let it have its way with you. This guy, <laughs> this one's got so many rewards tucked under its pretty simple veneer. And I love the fire engines at the end, too. Somehow that's really magical. Cool. I love this one. Thanks. They're from the Electra series of uh, sound effects CDs that I had gotten a hold of. I think they were repackages of actual vinyl LPs that they reissued on CD. With the so. crackle? Did they not match? <laughs> from the yeah, there is something on there. June is an amazing song. And yeah. I, I feel like without best knowing... on the record, probably. You think it's the best? Yeah, why not? Yeah, definitely. It, it's certainly up there. Is this entirely Bridget's song, or did you have a hand in writing? I guess I wrote the guitar part. And then I actually... Well, <laughs> Not that this this kind of reminds me of King Crimson because King Crimson they always say being in the group is not just knowing when to play but when not to play. So I think like that first whole section is just her and Phil, bass and drums. Right. I couldn't come up with something that I liked or that she liked. It's I don't perfect. think. And I and I was just like I'm not going to play anything. Yeah, it's it's perfect. I love songs that are Frankenstein together. I don't know if this was intended to be one piece or if it was two songs that she melded. Do you know? No, I think it was always one piece. I love that it just turns on a dime there. The second part of the song never ceases to be affecting for me, no matter how many hundreds of times I've listened to it. Loyola always thought it was a weird but wonderful way to end the album hmm. because June is such a natural closer. And then to have this bizarre, you know, in vaudeville when they would sing through megaphones, that's kind of the vocal effect. But I love it. It's a, a gloomy minor key ode to despondency and depression sees us out of a classic record. And it's a heart-wrenching conclusion to a mostly upbeat collection of tunes toward which you'd been working towards for about what seven eight years by this point did you feel like you had reached like you had done something special i'm curious when you left the studio with warden yeah. did you feel like holy shit, we really did something there or was it just another record just another team b catalog number yeah no i think we were definitely really happy with it and it was different i think we liked it a lot more than the sequencing and the recording of custom carnal exploitation you know we were just happy with it yeah 
ecstatic or happy ecstatic <laughs> no really did, i mean were you thrilled i mean have you let me ask you i mean it was this. exciting have it was kind of a bummer that we were excited enough that when the record didn't come out i think originally it was supposed to come out in like october at least that's what we were hoping because i remember going from the studio and actually designing the record back then it was paced up with design and i remember going to the matador records office even though they had nothing to do with making the record but i just happened to know those guys and I just remember pacing the record up and just trying to get the art ready to go because we wanted it to get out as soon as possible, like yeah. September or or October of 91. You know, in all the 550-something releases you put out on Team Beat, the ones that are self-originating, have you ever thought, that's perfect, I achieved everything I set out to, not, hey, this is brilliant, but this is exactly what I set out to make. Has it ever happened mm. or no? I think it's always a surprise. It's probably like when you make a movie, you write the script and you're like, okay, the script is pretty good. But then you cast different people in it. And then you're like, oh, this is kind of turning into something else that I didn't expect because these people are bringing different things to it. Not in the case of our record, but just the fact that once you get down there and you maybe you, you know, you add Isabel and that's, oh, that's completely different. And then you maybe add some something that you didn't uh, anticipate adding onto one of the other songs. One of the most interesting things about this record to me that came into much sharper focus listening to everything sequentially is that the band is still working in the same genres. If you squint, you can still see the, you know, the seeds taking sprout, all that stuff, at least drawing from similar enough wells. But to me, at least only now, notwithstanding Malcolm X Park, is the disparity actually creating a cohesion instead of feeling like, mm -hmm. you know, we have this, then we have this the disparity is actually pulling it together and threading it together. Right. It worked together somehow. That's the indefinable magic of Imperial to me. But I would say, like, I'm never completely happy with a record. Like, I can point to certain things, like, you know, there's, like, notes that are, all, like, because it's still all first takes, you know? It's still, like, yeah, yeah. we're just going in and out. So I can pick out little, there's, like, a part where the Champion 9 slows down. That's kind of annoying to me. I don't know why I'm saying that. But, it, you know, with the Cherry Cherry single, I think I was, like, pretty much completely happy with it. But that's only two songs. Well, I mean, the difference between the movie and music thing, especially when you're working with a low budget making a film is if you don't incorporate the accidents that happen, you're shooting yourself in the foot because that's ultimately your meal ticket if you don't have money. But with music, I would imagine, and I'm no professional, you are, you can have control over the output. If you don't like it, retake it. It doesn't have to be other people that you use. So in essence, you can craft and craft and recraft and hit it, can't you or no? I mean, not when you're paying a recording studio that you can barely afford or, you know what I mean? Like if there's a time constraint. Imperial to me is redolent of a time in my life when anything was possible. This album directly reflected that with the adept juggling that you had of different avenues of expression that made the process of looking at life from every conceivable angle a really enticing prospect. So, you know, with my brain sort of really awakening as a, as a man, your album soundtracked that. And so thanks. That's amazing, yeah. It's great to hear. Thank you. That's a hard five. Just because I'm happy with it, and I think we did something that we liked, I'm going to give it a 4.7. Well, I got to thank you for this one. And the reason I wanted to train the microscope down really, really far on it is because I get one shot at doing this with this record, and it's a big one for me. And, you know, you would continue to make lots of other big ones. 
All right, that about does it. Stay tuned, because next week brings the premiere of our interview with Elephant Six recording documentary executive producer Dan Ephraim, which kicks off an Elephant Six cavalcade over the coming months. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, the great Mark Robinson, Rudy Fishman, Teen Beat Records, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the Gen X flag wavers of 1990s indie alternative gold is to leap headfirst into the David Pajo series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography. That's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages' Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. My interview with No Ages' Randy Randall. That's episode 88. The Bob Nastanovich rates Pavement series from 49 to 58. Nirvana episode 30. The Replacements with Bob Mayer, 28 and 29. And number 18, The Pixies. Join us during the upcoming week for Discography's week-long Mark Robinson 2024 Deep Dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you're already a week ahead of the action, and you're listening to the following week's early-release Dan Ephraim Elephant Six recording doc episode, of which, by the way, there is not a director's cut, there's only a single cut. But day by day, here's what's up. This Sunday, you can expect another deliriously sociopathic entry into our brand new Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. And then this Wednesday, we've got something very special for you. The Mamas and the Papas series with Michelle Phillips and band biographer Richard Campbell is coming in April, but if you're a member of the Patreon major tier, you're going to be getting a beautiful gift this Wednesday, a five-minute video segment from the first taping I did with her, which I believe is literally the greatest five minutes in Discography history. You're welcome. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discography and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for over a year, and there are now well over 100 Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of indispensable music podcasts available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And it's free to become a basic member now, so go there and do that. Or just chuck me a buck and come claim your backstage pass. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, January 12th, we're coming at you with Dan Ephraim, executive producer of the incredible Elephant Six Recording Company documentary. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then... Don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Graffiti.